episode number 32 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade on your Buttle Off podcast. I'm Andy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vose. It's been about five months since we talked about Raiders of the Lost Ark, so it's a, a good time to return to this world and this character. If you say it is. <laughs> Mandy, you kind of answered this when we talked about Raiders of the Lost Ark, but how come you've never seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Because Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is of the devil and scarred me for life when I was a child, <laughs> when I walked in to find my parents watching it during the creepy crawly bug scene that leads into a blood drinking scene from my, you know, eight-year-old memory. Okay, yeah. And uh, after that, I wanted nothing to do with Indiana Jones. And then we watched Raiders a couple months back, and then after that, I definitely wanted nothing to do with Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs> So I watched this for you, Matthew. Yeah, so this is all coercion and peer pressure, yes. basically. <laughs> yeah, it's probably worth pointing out to anyone listening, uh, don't go through the back catalogue for the Temple of Doom, because we are not covering it, because uh, Mandy has seen it and didn't enjoy it, so it's probably not worth picking up again. Um, I did some reading on it to see, is there any reference, anything that we need to bring into this? No, not really. It was interesting to read that it was a much more violent and darker version. Like, even Steven Spielberg himself recognised that. It insulted the Indians thoroughly and, and got banned in the country for a while uh, because of kind of how race it is in a number of ways. Yeah, and, and I read that uh, when they decided to actually make this movie, that it was in part to apologise for the second movie. <laughs> Mm. So I, I'm glad we didn't watch it. So this week we are watching The Last Crusade, which you'd never seen, and you watched it because I said you should. Yes. Good. Nice. Absolutely. Okay. So before we get into our conversation, I always give, or well, one of us always gives a little bit of history and production information. So for this one, Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade is the third installment of the Indiana Jones franchise. While it's not actually a prequel because the main events do take place two years after Raiders, we do meet a young Indiana Jones, played by River Phoenix, and see an event in his life that helps shape his future life and adventures. Released on May 24, 1989, the film earned $474 million with a $55 million budget. And even though Temple of Doom had mixed reactions, Spielberg decided to complete the trilogy he'd originally promised. Last Crusade toned down both the gore and the violence. Several scripts were considered before Jeffrey Bohm's rewrite of an earlier draft was finally chosen. We almost had Ghosts, a monkey king who forced Indy to play chess and incinerated the loser, as well as another Nazi bar and the Fountain of Youth. The trailer for Last Crusade debuted in 1988 with Scrooge and the Naked Gun. A tie-in novel written by Rob McGregor was released in June 1989 and ended up on the New York Times bestseller list. The movie itself was nominated for three Academy Awards, Best Original Score, Best Sound, and Best Sound Editing. It did win for Sound Editing. Now, if you haven't seen it, which this is one I really anticipate most of you have seen, uh, this movie is about uh, when Indiana Jones's dad suddenly goes missing while pursuing the Holy Grail. He must follow in his father's footsteps to stop the Nazis from getting their hands on the Grail first. You seek the most Holy Grail. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Looks like we're going to have some impressions from Matthew in this one. <laughs> well, we've already covered a, a, a very good Holy Grail film. Right. Okay, I'm going to pretend like that one just never happened. Mandy, how did you watch Indiana Jones and the Lost Crusade? All of the Indiana Jones films are available on Amazon Prime in the United States, so I did not have to pony up any extra cash for this one. None of them are available over here on streaming, on Sky, on anything. Um, so I want to give a shout out to my friend Dave, who lent me his DVDs of this. So you also did not have to pony up any cash for this one. <laughs> I did not have to pony up any cash for this one. I'm sure it was. I, I looked through the list of upcoming films to make sure I had them available. And I'm sure in June it was available. And then I came to it a bit later and it wasn't. So oh, okay. I had a sudden thing of like, Dave, you've still got that on DVD, haven't you? Can I steal it? <laughs> Yay for friends who let us borrow things. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. You, you probably had quite a few expectations for this, so, so what did you think you were going into in watching the film? 
Well, if you guys did listen to the Raiders episode, you know that I feel very, very, very strongly that Indiana Jones is a really terrible human being. I hated that movie, and I hated that man. And so I came into this expecting to hate the movie and to hate the man. (laughs) (laughs) We don't really need to cover the background of the characters and the actors and the production team, because we did that on the last one. It's mostly all the same people. So have you enjoyed watching the film? In a very shocking turn of events... I have to admit that I did enjoy this one. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> you guys, nobody is as shocked as I am that this <laughs> is a movie that I liked. Um, yeah, I cannot believe how thoroughly engrossed I was by the movie. And mm-hmm. I, I did not find myself screaming at the screen. <laughs> other than, you know, there were there were one or two things, but they were more done, I think, because the movie was very aware of itself than mm-hmm. being serious, I think. So, yeah, I I did. I enjoyed this one. I did not despise Indiana Jones in this one. It's pretty great. <laughs> Which helps. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I would like to gush for a little bit. I think this is one of the great uh, action-adventure films, certainly for a younger audience. Um, it's so accessible. You could see the growth of him as a character from youth to, to actually being Indiana Jones. He's fighting for good all the way through this. He's making good decisions. Um, And it's interesting to look at the dynamic. There's no distractions on it. When they actually do the action, for the most part, it's surprising. It does some interesting things with on the tank and shooting through people. The motorcycle chase is is a little formulaic. It's what you expect. But by and large, as as an action film, it's really good fun all the way through. Yeah, I can agree with that. Mm. It was definitely better than the action sequences that we got in Raiders. I think there was one bit in in this one where I didn't quite understand that we weren't at the climax yet. And so I was thinking that mm. the, the big scene with the tank and that fight um, right before uh, Sala got all the camels and stuff, mm-hmm. I was thinking that was the climax of the film. And so my thought there was, this is really kind of a boring fight to be the climax of the film. And so... I was really glad when that wasn't it. Um, but by and large, you're right. The action sequences were better. Uh, the practical effects were better. There were no melting Nazis in this one. <laughs> Very which, true. Which is nice. <laughs> so I, I can appreciate it. The first thing that I really want to talk about uh, with this one is that this is the third movie in the franchise. And this is finally when we get to see the journey that Indy took from child to adventurer. Mm. This started with a 13-year-old Indiana Jones as an Eagle Scout in, you know, doing some kind of camping trip or whatever. And he comes across some bandits who are stealing this, you know, precious artifact. And we learn right away that Indiana Jones was always the way that he is because his Mm. instinct is they should not be stealing it because that belongs in a museum. So it's great that they found it, but they can't keep it. And I just, I really love that. And then we get to see his adventure in, in stealing the Coronado Cross from these bandits and, you know, going on the train chase and, and just running from them. And he finally gets it home. And and it was just a really nice story from his childhood for us to understand where he came from and why he does the things that he does. Um the, the two specific things I think that I would point out here are that I did not like where he got his hat from. I love his hat. Yeah. I love that he wears this hat and it makes him kind of rugged and, I don't know, classically handsome in that rugged kind mm. of way while he's mm. doing his adventures. But the fact that he got it from the bandit kind of diminishes that for me a little bit. Okay. You know, and, and the fact that he became this kind of adventurer to emulate this bad guy. And and I don't know that he was actually a bad guy, but, you know, he, he wasn't a good guy. That tainted the experience just a little bit, but I'm still not going to c- complain too much about what Indy looks like. Yeah, I'm not sure I have any thoughts on that particularly. I always quite liked seeing that he has this adventure and it's the thing that starts leading him to do stuff as we find out over the film, in a very different way to his father, where his father is all about the research, he's all about the getting your hands dirty and going doing the Tomb yeah. Raider thing. Yeah. Hmm. I think I'd never quite grasped that the bandit 
hunter dude with the hat is actually a bad guy. Well, I don't think he's a villain, but yeah, he's he of, hmm. he's the opposite of Indy. He's he's stealing the artifacts for profit. And yeah, so true. the only other the only way that I can think to categorize him is as a bad guy because he's not the good guy. I I don't know what else to call him. Is he the the medium guy? <laughs> the neutral guy? <laughs> <laughs> the capitalist guy? I don't know. I guess he's American, right? Because he's capitalist. Um, Lawful evil, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like that he was so inspired to become who he is, but I, I don't necessarily like that he models his life after the guy that he was trying to defeat, for lack of a better word. That's all. Yeah. And then I just want to call back to the snakes, because when this movie started... You know, and he was, his friend was afraid of the snake and he just grabbed it and threw it away. And I was like, oh my gosh, he's not afraid mm. of snakes. What happened? You know, because he's terrified of snakes and raiders. And, um, mm. and then we find out why. <laughs> and I would totally, totally be absolutely terrified of snakes if, if what had happened to him on that train had happened to me. Yeah. And uh, I, I really liked that, that they put it in there to kind of explain where his fear of snakes comes from because that mm. does seem like you know an, an odd fear for an explorer to have because you know when you spend a lot of your time in caves and in the jungle you're gonna encounter snakes mm. and so i appreciated that attention to detail we, we also follow that up with uh, him getting the whip against the lion mm-hmm. and the whip cuts him across the chin because harrison Ford properties always have to explain the scar on his chin for whatever reason, they always feel the need to, oh, that's where he got cut as a child. Oh, that's where this thing happened. I don't think matter. I've ever noticed that he has a scar on his chin. I, I wouldn't have noticed it, except I've seen a couple of things that do that reference. In fact, this might be one of the first ones. Okay. So it's just like, it's fine. People have scars. We don't all have to be like, oh, I got this scar from my childhood. and It's a sign of my trauma. Well, you know... I think I have a different perspective on that scene than you do because I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, put it together with a scar that he has in real life. I looked at, I think my thought on the doc was, of course he cut himself the first time he tried to use a whip, you know, <laughs> and I thought it was a good way to show he's a child, you know, he's learning. He doesn't know how to use a whip. You know, if I tried yeah. to use a whip right now, I'd probably do the same thing because you just don't understand how physics works, I guess. I don't know. So... It seemed, what <laughs> I don't know. It just it, it seemed completely plausible and expected. And so for me, it was just another attention to detail that I liked. But at the same time, I feel like his childhood story was a little bit too neatly wrapped up in a bow. It sort of felt like it was a caricature of what his childhood would have been because we've already met him. And so they just went and wrote a an origin story for him that perfectly matched what we've already gotten, if that makes sense at all. So you're saying this George Lucas character, when they came to tell something about his previous time, is not done as well as it could have done and not as nuanced and detailed as the later stories we get? Yes, I think so. That's a better way. I'd agree with that on bloody George Lucas prequels. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Nice way to bring some Star Wars into it. There were a few things that I had issue with, I think. Oh, yeah. Far fewer than I expected, but there were a few. Mm-hmm. I we're, find... we're not talking like Die Hard here, are we? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. I find it utterly implausible that Indiana Jones walked into this library and deciphered all of the clues and found the tomb within 30 seconds when nobody in all of the history of time has ever been able to do it. That just made no sense to me. Yeah, given the size of the X that marks the spot. Right. Like, it's a damn big X. At some point, someone would have... I, I would have understood it more if it had been there's an array of chairs or tables on it and he just notices it and then has to scatter them out of the way. Right. Maybe. And, but this is just a big X on the floor. Right, and him having to climb the stairs to the balcony to overlook it to recognize that it's an X. <laughs> when he's already seen it. Yeah, it's an yeah, X. it's an X. <laughs> So, I mean, that that piece I didn't like. I understand they had to do it to further the plot and to get them where he needed to be. But I feel like they could have done it differently. You know, he could have walked in and his father, who had already been in that library, 
you know, could have already found mm. it and then, you know, got captured after that. And so they walked into a big hole in the floor. You yeah. know, I, I feel like that would have been more plausible. Yeah, I I think I've, it's never taken me out of it in that way. I can completely understand what you're saying because, yes, it is a bit, okay, this guy's good, but also his dad's really good. So, But he has a line when he's doing his lecture to the class. He, he actually has the line, which is obviously fairly on the nose by what comes later. We do not follow maps to buried treasure, and X never, ever marks this spot. 70% of all archaeology is done in the library. Right. It's quite a nice way to tie them together, the, the irony of what he's been talking about, because yes, the archaeology was done in the library, but it was X marks the spot on the, uh, on the map. Okay. So you, you appreciated it. I, I quite enjoy that, uh, okay. bringing it together. All right. Uh, this is a, a nice segue into the cinematographer, Douglas Slocum, um, because there's a shot in the library that I absolutely adore where the camera's quite low down. You can see Marcus and Dr. Schneider and Indy. And then you can see the stained glass window behind them. And you can see the stairs in the foreground. And the, the it's obviously capturing quite a wide shot, but there's so much going on in it that you then see them moving around that he comes forward to the stairs. So in that one shot, he's encompassed everything we're going to need without having to work at telling us where all the different bits in the library are. He's just put the camera down and it's able to show them. Throughout the film, there's lots of really nice shots like that where he's doing something. I think it's something where he's set the camera quite far back and then zoomed in to be able to get lots in in frame and in focus at once. Right. it's, It's really well done. Uh, Douglas Slocum, I think this is his last film. He'd done the three Indiana Jones films up to this, but he also did The Italian Job. He did the original Great Gatsby with Robert Redford, um, and he did the movie version of Travels with My Aunt with Maggie Smith, um, most of which he was nominated or won Oscars for. Um, I think that was the year also Godfather and Cabaret were nominated, so no one else won anything. (laughs) Okay. Um, And just to tie this all together... Uh, when they made the next Indiana Jones film, it was the regular uh, Steven Spielberg cinematographer who took over at that point, who then tried to emulate Slocum's style. But that was the chap that started working with Spielberg on Schindler's List. Oh, okay. And has then done basically every film with with, uh, Steven Spielberg since then. Okay, cool. Mm. But I do love that shot in the library. I think it's just so nice to place everything we need in one scene without having to move the camera around and do multiple cuts and takes. I think that's a wonderful difference between you and I because I almost (laughs) never notice the cinematography, especially if it's the first time I've seen something because I'm too busy paying attention to, what are you doing, Indy? Of course. How did you do that so quickly? You know, why is there an X in the middle of the library floor? You know, and so I'm I'm not really paying attention to the the broader scope, and so I really like that you you bring that information to our conversations. Yeah, it's it's one of the things I go to film for, and that's why I love going to the cinema to see it because you're engrossed, you don't miss a thing, for the most part. Yeah. Except for when you have to dash out to to uh, go and have a comfort break. <laughs> At which point, I generally wait for an action sequence. This is this is one of those things of, of growing older. As a kid, I would have been like, "Oh, they're talking." I'm going to the toilet, but now I'm like, "Oh, it's an action sequence." I'll come back when they when they've run away. Right. I don't want to miss any exposition. Right, right. <laughs> yep, I think we are getting older for sure. <laughs> All right, you guys. There is one scene in this movie that brought my asshole Indy back. <laughs> what a phrase. Yeah, well, you know what I mean. (laughs) Uh, Please elaborate. I'm not going to say it. (laughs) (laughs) So my primary complaint for Indy in Raiders was that he was a terrible human being, mostly because of how he treated Marion and and the dynamic between those two. And so no surprise, the, the moment in this movie where I really, really don't like him also involves a woman. So... He is coming on to Dr. Schneider, or actually she comes on to him, and he interrupts her, breaks her off really forcefully, looks at her like dead in her eyes, and he kind of growls at her, and then he says, Leave me alone. I don't like fast women. And then he like violently kisses her. 
And I'm just like, what? What? What are you doing? And why would you say a thing like that when you're just going to keep kissing her anyway? <laughs> and uh, yeah, that that's the moment where, you know, Indy from Raiders showed back up. Hmm. And so that's... That's the only, only moment in this movie where he was like that. And that's because Dr. Schneider was not intended to be a love interest for him. She was the antagonist. Mm. And so what I learned is that Indiana Jones is just fine without a woman. (laughs) I don't know why they had to bring a woman into it and just ruin him in Raiders. But in this movie, when he didn't have a love interest to turn him into an awful person, except for this one kissing scene... He was a completely decent human being. Mm. And I don't really understand that. I think that means Indiana Jones needs to be, like, single for his whole entire life and just not be around <laughs> women. But, yeah, that that's where I ended up uh, with Asshole Indy in this one. It was just a tiny little bit, but it was a bad one, you guys. I, I do love that scene. It's a, another slight example where I say that they're doing something slightly different. Because there is an assumption that at some point they're going to get it on. As, as as Lani always says, I'm hot, you're hot, let's be hot together. Mm-hmm. But the fact they do it in this aggressive thing of, I don't really like you, but, well, we're in a room and we've been in an action sequence, so let's kiss. Right. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I can't remember, I know they don't explicitly say it, but it is implied that they do end up spending some time together, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's implied they spent the night, right? A period together. Okay, that's what I thought. Uh, but suddenly, I'm blanking out on how the timeline progressed in that hotel scene. I, I've got the script here. Of course, you uh, do. I don't like I don't like fast women, but he embraces her and also begins to nibble at his ear. And I hate arrogant men. Indy smiles slyly as they fall to the bed. Oh, okay. But the next day, a gondolier sings as he steers his gondola, carrying two passengers past Indy's window. Indy lies on top of Elsa, kissing her. He stops for a moment as he hears the gondolier singing. Ah, Venice. Was that scene in the movie? Ah, uh, pass. Okay, I don't remember that last scene being in the movie, but I the, because it sounds like it came so closely after her, I don't like fast women mm. and her nibbling on his ear, which completely grossed me out. <laughs> Maybe I just, you know, overlooked it, uh. blocked it out. But my favorite thing about this movie is that this was a father-son adventure with Indy and his dad. And Mm. I thought that was great. You know, we get to see a lot of their relationship and we get to see that relationship develop through this adventure. Because it's clear that while Indy got his love of archaeology from his dad, that's really all he ever got from his dad. As a kid, they didn't have a close relationship. Indy's dad was too busy with his research and everything for Indy to feel like he had a relationship with his dad. And, you know, that becomes clear when we're watching some of this because it's very evident that Dr. Jones Sr. really doesn't know his son at all and doesn't know how capable he is. And he gets there eventually, but when this adventure is first starting, it's very clear that they really know very little about each other. And and we get things like uh, when Indy says Jesus Christ and his dad slaps him. Mm-hmm. And it's visually such a tiny slap. But Indiana Jones has this giant like physical reaction to the slap. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it could go one or two ways. One, this was just overacting. <laughs> or two... You know, that's actually him having a physical reaction to his dad because they don't have that kind of relationship. And I choose to believe it's that one. Because if it is, it just adds a lot of depth and nuance to the characters. I always read it as it takes him back to his childhood, the way he was taught growing up. And the fact that they've spent so little time together and he's forgotten not to blaspheme around his father. Not to blaspheme while they're on the hunt for the Holy Grail as well. Like, (laughs) all the times to do it. Yeah. (laughs) But no, yeah, it's it's you can see the strength of the reaction from him, and it's not because the slap is so vicious and it's left a, a scar on his chin, for instance. <laughs> um, just just about how strong his reaction is is to do with the the realization he's with his father. He's not on one of his adventures; it's his father's adventure, and he's now coming along for it. I don't know. I'm not 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that's quite how I see it, but okay. I think we're allowed to have different different <laughs> opinions there. But the, the father-son adventure is a really nice part of it because you do get a couple of quiet moments, particularly them on the Zeppelin together, where they actually talk through this obsession with the Grail. They, there's a mention of Indiana's mum and passing away, hiding her illness. And you can sense there's there's always been a distance between them. And whilst they're trying to come to some reconciliation between them, neither knows how to particularly take that first step and get their will. Oh, I did not like that conversation they had on the Zeppelin. It made me angry for for both of them. Particularly Mm -hmm. for Sean Connery's character, because to me, it read as if he was being insincere. And it just, it felt very mocking of Indy and Indy's feelings in that... Well, you say we've never talked, so let's talk. Talk right now. What do you want to say to me? You know, and he's not being open. He's not being kind. And so, of course, Indy's going to say, well, I don't know. I mean, what would you say if, if your father, who you were desperate for love from, suddenly started talking to you like that? It just, it, it felt very insincere and, and very disingenuous, and I just... I didn't like it, and maybe that's just a sign of my own parental issues. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but it, yeah, I, I didn't like it at all. Yeah, it's very aggressive back from Henry, where I think he's got a paper and he puts it down and says, okay, what do you want to talk about? And you know, as soon as someone says to you, what do you want to talk about? You're like, I, I don't know right. anything. The weather, sports. Hey, that local sports franchise. Um <laughs> Yeah, it, so it was just a little too aggressive for me. And for, then for it to not have a resolution, mm. I think made it worse. I mean, ultimately, their relationship did have a resolution, and so that was good. But just in that moment, it, it didn't work for me. But that's okay. It didn't have to. And I, I, I like just coming out of that, the use of the shadow that they know they're turning. Right. It's one of those ways of thinking of going, oh, I can see what's going on because I've got this clue here in front of me. It's a little obvious from the way it's shot, but it is it is still a very nice very nice way of moving the action on. Well, it's also a nice callback to the the previous indie movies because Shadow was heavily used in Raiders. Mm, and so it it wasn't as heavily used in this one, but it, it was still there. We still got some of those big silhouette on the wall shadows, yeah. a few. And and particularly so, the castle. Mm. Right, right. And so I think um it's just a callback for the the cinematographer on this one is you know, paying respect to what's come before in this franchise, and that's a nice thing. Yeah, very much his style, and it's, it's really well used. Since we're talking about the scenes on the Zeppelin, hmm. should we have our segment of embarrassing things that Mandy doesn't know are real? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you guys. Just, just one this time, at least. <laughs> I had no idea that commercial travel on Zeppelins was an actual thing. I didn't even realize Zeppelins were really that widespread. You know, we see them in a couple episodes of Doctor Who, and I'm just always like, oh, well, that's Doctor Who. It's fictional. Those weren't real. <laughs> <laughs> and um, guess what, you guys? Zeppelins were real. There was commercial flight on Zeppelins, and uh, I, I learned a new thing about history from watching Indiana Jones. So, <laughs> yay me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, very much they're used in alternate history things. Yes, and I think that's why I always assumed they were fictional, because most of the time I see them, it is in alternate universes, and it's in those, you know, like, drawings from the 1950s that are guessing at what life is going to be like in the year 2000, <laughs> you know? And so in my head, they they were just made-up things. They weren't real, <laughs> and they, they were very much real, so... Hmm. Live and learn, right? Yeah, they were uh, obviously used very heavily at the beginning of the 20th century um, from a German design. So that's why they're so heavily linked to Germany and the Nazi party. Um, but then the Hindenburg disaster in nineteen late 1930s, I think, basically brought the end of it. Zeppelins were, were not made or used after that particularly. Okay. Mm. Oh, Do you know that the, the Hindenburg disaster, does that mean anything to you? Yes. I mean, I, I was aware of that, but mm. i that's the only thing that I've ever heard in history that had an actual one of these 
flying contraptions. And so I always thought it was just this one-off thing. Like, they made it, they tried it, and it failed. So we don't have them. (laughs) Wow, I sound so ignorant and stupid. (sighs) Yay for podcasting that teaches me things that actually happened in history. (laughs) Yay. (sighs) Yeah, Yeah, you particularly see them in in things where... um, the Western Western civilization has either not won the Second World War or has developed differently. It's a thing that's come back in and continued to be used. Yep. And and of course, the band Led Zeppelin. Is that where that comes from? Uh, yes, they wanted a name that. Oh, they were told they should ha- have a name that goes down like a lead balloon. Okay. So they took it one step further. In in you know, see that's really witty. Well done, chaps. But <laughs> <laughs> I would never ever have they, known that. They were probably very stoned, so I don't mind. (sighs) Well, you guys, in addition to uh, pop culture education, I'm actually getting some real-life history education today. So (laughs) thank you, Matthew, and thank you, Indiana Jones. Sean Connery is adorable. He's adorable. (laughs) But my favorite moment with Sean Connery was whenever he decided to actually step up and do something useful instead of just standing there and running his mouth. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, in in the scene where they're standing on a beach and the German plane is, is turned around and is going to come bomb them on the beach, uh, Sean Connery takes his umbrella, opens it, and just starts running at this huge flock of birds, seagulls, I guess. And um, it's brilliant because they all immediately fly away. And because there's so many, they just completely, like, encompass the plane. And so, you know, the plane doesn't bomb them. And and it's just amazing. And I was actually clapping my hands in delight while Mm. I was watching the scene. Because he was finally being as capable as we're used to Indiana Jones being. And so you finally start to see... These two have more in common than just a love of archaeology. And I thought that was really nice. Yeah, they're both very quick to resolve a situation in some way and come up with with good stuff. I mean, it did take him a while to get to that point. Yeah. And he d- does shoot down the back of the plane. <laughs> um, but it, it, was ni- it was a nice moment and I liked it. And I, I think... I mean, he had a lot of fun moments. Like when he sets the carpet on fire. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's just funny. Like, he starts trying to blow it out and it doesn't work, and then the whole room's on fire. And um, I like that. And uh, he was just, he was cute. And I think a lot of that just comes from the sheer fact that it's Sean Connery. Mm. Um, because Sean Connery is amazing no matter what he does. Mm. <laughs> Although, I've really when, not when seen he's a good, lot he's that he's good. done. Yeah. So. I mean, I've never even seen him play James Bond, so I probably really shouldn't be speaking to his talent. Oh, he's a very good Bond, yeah. I've seen him in The Rock. I really like that movie. (laughs) (laughs) He was in The Avengers. What? But not that Avengers. Oh, (laughs) okay. (laughs) I was like, what? There's a very old British series uh, called The Avengers, and they tried to bring it back in the late 90s, and he's the villain in it. Okay. Mm. It's not very good. I mean, the original series was good. Film, less so. Okay. What about you? Did you have some particular things other than the cinematography that that you wanted to call attention to before we move into our favorite parts? Um, I think the the two that I definitely want to call out are the the performances from uh, our our supporting roles julian glover as brody doing the the bumbling englishman bit is just so adorable and particularly the way they talk about him they have that moment of bigging him up and saying oh he's so good he'll disappear you'll never find him and then cut to him going hello does anyone speak english right (laughs) that cracked me up because i was listening to any talk about him and i'm like that is not the way they have set this character up to be And, and and so i couldn't quite tell that he was just talking big until they did that irony cut to him on the street mm. <laughs> and um it got you know it got better when when sala is like trying to to talk to i don't even remember who and like he keeps interrupting himself and just telling the other guy to run telling birdie to run and then he's like talking all animatedly and then he's like run and he's just not getting it <laughs> and that made me laugh and and yeah absolutely 
Salah, I said he was the best thing in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. He's not. He's used with a very light touch in this. He's not in it too much. But John Reese davies is, again, truly wonderful. Every moment he spends on screen, he's fun and he's got good lines that he delivers well. Where the car's burning, oh, that was my brother's car. <laughs> See, I don't even remember that line. What's the moment? When, when they're spying and, and Indy says, oh, we're far enough away, they can't hit us. And then the car behind them explodes. Okay. John Reese davies just goes... That car belonged to my brother-in-law. Okay. <laughs> and I like that. Yeah, he didn't have any moments in this one as good as his funny moment in, in Raiders that I liked so much no. when yeah. when the dragon, the stone dragon and, and the crypt appears and he just gets so scared and it's like, ah! <laughs> you know, he didn't have any moment as good as that one. No, absolutely. But I, I did appreciate him. You know, I mean, because he did bring most of the comic relief in this one, the, the camel thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know why <laughs> my he needed car. camels, but he needed camels. and What? He got the camels to pay his brother back for the car. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> All I was thinking was, no, don't go get the camels. And then he went and got the camels, so. And just to wrap up on Julian Glover, who played Marcus Brody, uh, he's been in a few Doctor Whos in the past. He was in the original series of The Avengers that that Sean Connery film was based on. Mm-hmm. But he is also Grandmaster Pycelle from Game of Thrones. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's nice see- seeing someone with quite a span of career and you see him coming in and playing these different roles as he goes through. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty great. A bit like a bit like Sean Connery, to be fair, who moves from playing the, the hero going to the hero's dad and then the hero's friend or mentor. And <laughs> Right. Except he retired. He did. After the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yeah. Which is not on the list. Hmm. No, and I have not seen it, so we couldn't. No, and we're not going to see it. Oh, we're not going to see it. Okay. It was bad. Okay. I remember wanting to see that specifically because it had Sean Connery in it, and then I never did. Yeah, it's a good idea. I hear the comic is extraordinary, but the the film was not good. So the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen comic is extraordinary? Possibly so. Okay. Yeah. The film is ordinary. Okay. Mandy, what were some of your favorite things from this film? Well, I've already talked about several. Shockingly enough, I still can't believe I love this movie. (laughs) But finding out that Indiana Jones is not actually named Indiana Jones, that he is, you know, Henry Jones Jr. And he took, he named himself Indiana after the family dog was amazing and funny. I didn't know that. Like, I don't know if if that's common knowledge for the rest of the world. I had no idea. And so that was a nice, funny thing, and I just mm. burst out laughing. Yeah, it's it's the end of this that uh, introduces that as an idea, and it's really funny at that point. I love it. And then the second thing is, uh, in the prologue, after Indy has, has gotten the cross from the bandits, and he runs out of the cave, and he's looking for the rest of his Eagle Scout troop, and they're nowhere to be found, he says, everybody's lost but me. <laughs> I'm just like, yep, that's young Indy, all right. Yeah, <laughs> and I thought it was great. It's great. So yeah, I mean, those two were the, were the top two out of the whole movie. But you know, I, I've gushed a lot about this one. So, uh, what about you? I know you have a a lot of gushing thoughts about this movie. It's one of your favorites. So, yeah, it's just it's so much fun all the way through. It, it doesn't generally let up, and where it does, the dialogue is quite good, and it's it's. It paced very nicely because it keeps you keeps you wanting to see what's going to happen next, but not getting bored by the dialogue or what's happening. Um, I love the moment on the Zeppelin where he sees they're coming on to find people, so he steals the waiter's uniform and then punches the guy out, throws him off, and just turns around with a no ticket. And then everybody starts scrambling <laughs> to show him their tickets. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I thought that was great. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, which which is actually then um, done almost match for match in, I think it's Dogma. It's either Dogma or Jane Silent Bob Strike Back with Silent Bob, and that's one of his only lines in the film. He's throwing someone off a train and then turning around and going, "No ticket." <laughs> okay, I don't recall ever having seen that, so it's probably not Dogma, and I will never watch Jane Silent Bob Strike Back, so I will never get to enjoy that bit of humor. Ooh. Should I recommend Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back? I love Jay and Silent Bob. No. But I'm, I'm I, sure I won't you do will. it. No. You'll be doing that it, episode by yourself. I mean, it does have a very obvious, obvious Buffy reference on it because it stars Eliza Dushku. I don't care. <laughs> a 
a Buffy actress is not enough to get me to watch that movie. <laughs> Buffy actress does not a good film make. No, it doesn't. Hmm. And then the the sequence of retrieving the Grail. What is what is the actual climax of the film? You said you you felt like the tank action sequence was going to be the climax, and and in another action adventure, yes, it would be. But this then goes quite quiet in in the shooting of his father to give him a reason to go and get the cup is is a very nice setup. And then going through the trials. The way they start off with these possible riddles about how to solve them and then what is actually going on is just a very mechanical thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just really nice. It's it's a lovely sequence of different trials. You could understand how people wouldn't be able to make it through. Can I or- just say, though, I figured out the first one before Indy did and I was shouting at my TV, Neil, Indy, <laughs> Neil! Neil! <laughs> <laughs> you know that I'm really into a show or a movie when I'm actually <laughs> shouting at my TV. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that was, it was good. Um, mm. I did not expect the night to actually be there. Mm, really? That surprised me. I I thought it would be a metaphor, a statue. I didn't expect it to be a real person. Okay. Uh, and so I like that it was, since that's not what I expected. And, and then that end piece is really quiet and really well done for the decision about the cup and then taking it back out to his father and his father's suddenly healed, it washes away his wound and you have the uh, juxtaposition of her reaching for the grail and falling to a death and Indiana being saved by his father and his father's love for him, convincing him to come to come back with him. It's a great ending. It just brings it all yeah. nicely together. And he called him Indiana instead he of does. Junior and it just mm. made my heart sing. And particularly because he'd had a moment not long before that where he says, I thought I'd lost him. I thought I'd never right. get to say anything to him again. Yeah. He realizes this is another of those moments, so he does the thing to save him. It was a good, good ending. I I don't expect movies like Indiana Jones to tug on my heartstrings, but it did. They did that father-son relationship so well. Mm. You know, and you don't usually get that kind of relationship or relationship development in an action-adventure movie. Yeah, And so to combine them so neatly and do it so well is something that was entirely unexpected, particularly for an Indiana Jones movie after I'd already hated Raiders. Mm-hmm. So this was very, very pleasantly surprising, and I liked it a lot. I will say, though, I was really sad about the night at the end because, I mean, I think he was going to die anyway because the Grail sort of had passed on to somebody else now but he ended up I mean they don't show it but he kind of gets crushed in the mountain because it's all falling down around him because Dr. Schneider's a greedy terrible person greedy idiot and um so I felt I mean he's just standing there and he waves at them and you know the walls are crashing down around him and I just I felt bad for him yeah yeah because his brief time on screen he is a very nice person but clearly very wise and ready to move on i do have to wonder though does being sustained for eternity off of the holy grail does that mean you don't have to actually eat food yes <laughs> no uh i mean it doesn't make sense but that, that's i guess i mean that's just in a detail they didn't pay attention to but there's no way this guy's had food for the last thousand years yeah drink drink of this cup for it is my body for it is my blood Maybe he's got a stack of communion wafers as well. Um. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. That that probably shouldn't be something that struck me, but it did. You know, this poor guy's been living in this cave mm. all by himself for the last however many centuries and centuries. And all he had was, you know, a cup and some water. Yeah. And for the second show in a, ref- in a row, I'm going to go, perhaps he's got some Lembus bread. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps he does. All right. Well, is there anything else that we need to discuss about The Last Crusade? I have one question, which has never occurred to me until the watch this week. Um, At the very end, the evil Nazi dude comes in to take the cup. And in my head, he'd always taken the most glorious cup, and it had been the wrong one. I don't think I'd ever noticed that it's actually Dr. Schneider who gives him what she thinks is the grail. So is it that she thinks that's the grail? Because it's the most glorious cup of, of them all. Or is she giving him what she thinks is the wrong one because she wants him out of the way? I thought it was clear that she purposely gave him the wrong one. 
but that okay. could just be my my interpretation of it because at that point she was not really happy with her Nazi compatriots. Mm. You know, we started to see that in the book burning scene. They set that up because she's crying mm. because they're burning the books. And then from that point forward, they weren't really in sync anymore. And so it just seemed the way they shot it and the expression on her face, I felt like she purposely chose the wrong cop because she knew it wasn't the right one and it would kill him. Yeah, this watch through, that's that's what I've taken away from it. But as I say, I'd, I'd never picked up on that before. And, and particularly, like you say, because she's a, a bit more of a nuanced villain, antagonist, does make it possible that she's doing that other really so she can claim the grail for herself if not get rid of the person who's putting them all in danger right I, well and i i think i did read it a little bit more that way that that okay. she wanted the cup for herself and so she was getting him out of the way because i'm not sure that she would have actually given it to indy or maybe she would have to help save his father because she was feeling bad but still tried to take it which she did still try to take it yeah I'm not sure, but I do, I feel very strongly that she did pick the wrong cup on purpose for the dude okay. to die. And I quite like that as a moment. It adds adds a little bit more depth to the film for me. Good. Okay. Um, there is another Indiana Jones film. He says... No, there's not. Through gritted feet, teeth, yeah. No, there's gritted, not. Yeah, no. Even you, I you know on. enough to say no, there's not. And it's it's really funny because, again, did a bit of research on that, see if there's any comment I want to make. It was crit- uh, critically a mixed success. Commercially, it was a huge success. Three quarters of a billion dollars it made. So it did well, to, to the extent they are making a fifth one uh, to come out in 2020. Really? Mm. That's so strange to me because I have not heard one single good thing about that movie. I feel like it just made it made so much because so many people went to see it hoping it would be good. Yeah. And then universally what I have heard is that it's awful. I don't know. I mean, obviously I haven't seen it. I wanted to see it because it was, you know, a new thing. It had Shia LaBeouf, it had Harrison Ford, and I, I was just mm. interested in, in that combination. Um, but universally... Every person I know who went to see it has told me it's awful and that it should not exist. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's not a good film. It does some very bad things in it. And, and there probably are good things about it, but it's just really hard to... It's really hard to enjoy it when there's so much badness in front of you. Mm. So we're not going to do that one, right? <laughs> no. And if we're still doing this in 2020, we'll consider going and seeing the new one. Okay. All right. I, I, we'll work with that. We've got a couple years then. <laughs> So moving out of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, uh, we've had some lovely feedback from our When Harry Met Sally episode with Lonnie Diane Rich. Our first comment was from Nina Instead on Facebook, who had a funny story about When Harry Met Sally. Uh, I was in high school when it came out. One of my guy friends and I had a deal. On the Friday nights, we didn't have a date or party to go to. Rather than sitting at home alone, we'd go out together. One Friday, we went to see that movie. So awkward. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) that would have been uh, like going and seeing a romantic comedy is probably not bad but seeing one where they're discussing friends who watch a film together and then uh, the fact that they could end up as a couple together you must have sat there going let's not touch I'm just going to lean away from you over here (laughs) I feel like that's almost as awkward as uh, when I was a senior in high school I went with a male friend who I had a crush on to go see American Pie. Okay. That was that was awkward. Because of your innocence Just, and well, yes, a, because of, a more racy because film? Because of, 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 my, uh, of my innocence, yes, and, and yeah. seeing the, the content of that movie with <laughs> a, a guy I had a very significant crush on at the time. Oh. It, was, it was uncomfortable. Very, very uncomfortable. <laughs> Next, we had a comment from Katie on Twitter, at Katie Sheru. She said, I loved this episode and loved the film. You all mentioned a few of my favorite moments, but how did no one bring up Baby Fishmouth? And my only response to that is there were so many things to talk about that I honestly completely mm. forgot about that whole scene. <laughs> and I'm yeah, so ho- sorry. The whole Pictionary scene is a lot of fun. 
but it does come and go quite quickly, particularly because it gets into that in-depth discussion about the other person's partner and it's giving us a lot of information about how they feel about each other. Right. Um, but it's, yeah, it's so funny because I think we all know that kind of person who just gets on one track and can't get <laughs> off it. You're like, Shut up. Stop <laughs> saying baby fish mouth at me. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Our final comment was from Kathy underscore A, who commented on the website. Uh, she suggested we watch Who Am I This Time from 1980, a romantic comedy that stars Christopher Walken and Susan Sarandon, a brilliant homage to theatre geeks and small town acting troops, and shows how acting can bring people out of their shells and draw them into a tight-knit community. All I'm going to say is you had me at rom-com that stars Christopher Walken. <laughs> Absolutely. So I really think this needs to go on the list. <laughs> I'm uh, just a guy standing in front of a girl wanting to... Uh... <laughs> yeah. yeah, I, I think so um, if we don't do it for the show, I need to find it just so I can watch it because it sounds mm. amazing. <laughs> Who am I this time? What a great title as well. Yeah. That, there's a whole period of 70s films that have titles that just don't seem to mean much to the film or, or don't make sense. Great period. I'll take your word for it. Remember, those are old movies, so I don't know anything about them. <laughs> well, there are so many ways that you can get in touch with us if you want to. You can give us your comments on this or any other movie we've discussed using the hashtag PCDeprived on Twitter. You can find us on both Facebook and Twitter at Eloquent Gushing. We're also both on Twitter. I'm at Mandy Kay. And I'm at Matthew Vos. If you like what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you gain access to exclusive content and you help us to develop new shows and continue putting out this work. And to find out more, please visit patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. And remember to recommend the show to, the, to a friend if you do enjoy it. Uh, we, we've had a, a lot of people commenting to us that they've uh, recommended this episode or this thing they've watched with a friend. I think we saw someone who was celebrating Shark Week, so had to break out Jaws and then listen to our episode on Jaws as well. So it's always really nice to hear. And if you want to keep up to date with the latest news and announcements, don't forget we have a weekly newsletter. The link is available on eloquentgushing.com. We'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived, where we'll talk about Doctor Who on our third Tuesday television episode. If you want to watch along and be prepared for those uh, upcoming episodes, you can find our list of essential Who episodes at tiny.cc slash pcdwho. We will put a link in the show notes to the the doc with those episodes so you can watch with us. And Matthew is doing some live watches on Wednesday nights in his irresponsible time zone. <laughs> so until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. And he chose poorly. Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, go to eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at Eloquent Gushing. <laughs>